Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, yield curves, and then after that, a uh, surprise quiz that I promised you, and after you're finished with that, you can go home for a while and enjoy the uh, rainy weather. The, I will have one more quiz, a surprise quiz, on next, uh, that, that will be next Wednesday, just getting you up to speed, giving you as much as I can as far as prep for the uh, midterm goes. But for today, we're going to go through uh, a couple of subjects here. One thing that I'm going to add a little bit to the uh, lecture last time and then move on from there to some new exciting topics. But bear with me, I'm still trying to get everything set, put together here for this. Okay, here we go. Quick look at the uh, numbers. As you can see, well, it started out actually as a mild bull day. It had some choppiness at the beginning of the trading, and then it began to rise. Uh, all of them did, but it, they're, they're tanking out now. And interestingly enough, the Dow is the strongest down. Typically, the Dow is, in general, the Dow is the least volatile. And then the S&P 500 is down a little less. And the NASDAQ is just broken into negative territory again. What it looks to me like is that the um, minutes from the Federal Reserve's last meeting were released, and it's clear that they are just hell-bent on getting rid of inflation, just crushing the money supply, to the extent that they have to for as long as they have to, which causes interest rates to go up. And so that's where the market said, okay, that means bad times and a recession. And of course, there's data both ways. And we're going to talk about that today. One of the indicators of, future, of a future recession, you're going to see it, you'll know how to look for it yourself. But for the time being, just looking at these numbers here, it's not a horrible down day. Honestly, the market was kind of expecting that the Fed was going to continue its uh, aggressive, uh, tight monetary policy, and they are. Crude is just, uh, it, was it yesterday I heard uh, there was talk about crude breaking the neckline on the downside of $70 a barrel. Now, right now, gasoline prices are still unusually high, especially at this price uh, at the uh, wellhead well, uh, in the pipeline. So uh, I don't know how to, how to put it, but uh, it looks to me like the gas, uh, the big oil companies are trying to get some final last-minute prop, abnormal profits here before gas prices slide, but who knows. Gold, nothing there, So, and uh, silver the same way. Now, 10-year bond, the yields are down. That means the prices are up. 
That means that investors are buying bonds. Prices go up and the yields go down. And of course, that's the safe haven thing, a flight to quality, getting out of the riskier equities and taking that money and putting it into bonds. That's what that is. And, and it's not anything serious. I mean, you know, you've got four basis points, but it's still enough to get our attention. Now, on the other side of the world, uh, London, or rather Japan, uh, Tokyo had a down stroke in the early trading, and then there was no more news, good or bad, so it just floated. That's the way it works. Markets respond to the current news uh, as they can, and since there's no more news after whatever pushed it down there early, it just floated, and it ended up in negative territory. Nothing spectacular. Well, I shouldn't say that. That was down one and a third percent. So that was a pretty, but it all happened in the early morning trading. Now, London, it started on a downstroke, but you see that there was some bull rally going on. And even when the bell rang, it was trying to push back up into positive territory, but it did finish down from the, from the opening, down a little more than a half a percent. So, and then it came over here to this side of the world and we started out in a good mood, and then it swung around. And when I started last class, it was still in strong positive territory. And then just from there, about an hour and a half ago to now, the Fed released its minutes, and that got the uh, bulls off the uh, grid and put the bears in charge. Uh, enough of that. Now, uh, let me do a couple of quick things here. It's always nice when you can predict the future, and I'll show you a little bit about that here in this lecture. But I do want to go through a couple of quick uh, last-minute points from the lecture on Monday. As I had shown you, an interest rate is a set of blocks the risk-free rate plus the uh, risk premium. Now you remember that risk premium was the default premium, the uh, maturity premium, which will come into play today in this lecture a lot, maturity premium, and the illiquidity premium. And the risk-free rate. Now, the risk-free rate is the, the sum of the real rate, that is the supply and demand intersection of the money's, uh, money curve. Demand for money and the supply of money, where they cross, that's the real rate, plus this expected inflation premium. Now, in actual practice, the expected inflation premium is not easy to find. We use some other things. We use the actual inflation oftentimes, which is kind of not the thing we should use, but there's that. When I talk about the nominal rate that is the real rate 
plus the inflation premium. So whenever you hear an interest rate, it's probably almost assuredly a nominal rate. It's that composite of those two. So if I had, like, for example, a real rate of, let's say, 1.4% and an inflation premium of, let's say, 2.5%, then the nominal rate, the rate we would see, would be 3.9%. Nothing complicated about that. Here, here's a, one, one quick mention. Is that technically this formula, we all use it for a lot in finance, and you would probably use it in uh, one of your formulas if you had to. The, that right there. But technically, that's not right. There's another formula that is the exact formula for nominal rate. I'll show it to you. Um, one plus the real rate is actually one plus, I'm sorry, one plus I, the nominal rate, I'm sorry. One plus the nominal rate is actually one plus the real rate, in parentheses, times one plus the inflation premium. That's the actual formula. It, this formula right here gives you very close to the same answer, as long as interest rates and inflation premiums aren't large. Let, let me show you what I mean by that. So in that example there, one plus the real rate would be 1 plus 0 0.014 times 1 plus 0 0.025. So if I pulled that up and did that on a calculator, um, uh, I would have, open parenthesis, 1 plus Point zero one four times one plus point zero two five, and that would be that. And then you subtract one to get the real rate by itself minus one. So the actual real uh, nominal rate is point zero three nine four. Uh, 3.94%. As you can see, it's only four basis points different from the quick and dirty formula. And they will be pretty close, and that's why we usually just use that what we call summative relationship instead of the technically more, more accurate multiplicative relationship. It doesn't, it isn't that close though if one or both of those uh, numbers, the real and the inflation premium, are big. They begin to diverge, and that's 
why I, we show it in a class like this because if you, we, we'll use it for something else entirely. We have to use the exact formula. And this is always a dilemma in this class. There's a subject that is, that it's a, I should cover in this part of the course. It's called forward rates. And it is just confusing enough that I'm concerned about someone slashing the tires on my car, showing it to you. And so I, I, I always ask myself, do I need the new tires anyway? And today I don't need new tires, so I'm not going to show you where you would actually have to use this, this multiplicative relationship. Maybe later I'll show it to you. But there are other important things to show you right now. One, one thing, and I'm sticking with this nominal and real and inflation premium. The expected inflation is what is important to the policy of the Fed, to the economy, and all of that. What has actually happened with inflation affects the expected inflation premium. But as I showed you in that last lecture, a lot of times expected inflation will stay high even when actual inflation begins to break down, go down, because the markets expect it to go back up because they expect the Fed to back off. That's why right now the money supply is actually under pretty good control already. However, because the markets still have this high expectation of inflation, the Fed has to just keep cranking the money supply down until the markets finally believe it. So in other words, if I were to give you, uh, uh, you sir, uh, your pay increase, I would say, well, inflation is going down. And you'd say, oh, no, fat boy, I've seen it going up, so I want a higher rate than the, uh, what we've seen inflation. You're not going to just, oh, and banks are that way. They're not going to say, oh, wow, Fed's in control. Let's just bring down our mortgage rates. They're not going to do it yet. Same with car loans. Those loan interest rates are still stupid high right now. And it's because there's expected inflation. And the Fed, that's why they're being so tough and butch on this, is because they are going to do what old man Volcker did, I told you in that last lecture. They're just going to throttle it until the patient is nearly dead, and then they'll uh, and get the markets to believe them. But just talking about inflation itself, measuring inflation, those numbers that you hear, the inflation rate for last month was, there are actually different inflation metrics, measures, as it were. The one that most people would be familiar with, at least from the numbers, is the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Now, it works like this. We start in a base year, say January of 2020. We take a market basket of goods uh, that the average consumer, consuming household, would buy. It would have to include things like, you know, bread, milk, cheese, cat food, snacks, potato chips, 
toilet paper, your average goods. And it would also put in some other things, your housing expense for a month, for that month, and it would include fuel costs, the typical what a consumer would buy. And then every month, that becomes the base year. Okay, that becomes a base. And then after that, every month, they buy the same, they theoretically buy the same market basket of goods and uh, do it again. And if that, and then they take the uh, second month divided by the base month and then minus one, and you get your inflation rate. That's a CPI. It's about as simple as that. Unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. I'll get back to that in a minute here. But then there's also another one called the producer price index, the PPI. This does the same thing, except at the wholesale level. And this is important because what happens is um, whatever is going on, price rises at the... Uh, at the uh, producer level, we figure, well, that's a warning of what's going to happen at the consumer level in the next month, few months. So in other words, this is sort of like a foreshadowing PPI, how much it goes up is sort of a warning about how much the, um, the consumer price index is going to go up. So the PPI is kind of an important one too. There are a couple of things that, let me back that back here. The CPI, there is, there are two versions of the CPI. There's the CPI itself, the one with the big market basket of goods, and you measure how much it costs every month to see how much inflation is. But then there's another measure called the core. Now the core takes out a couple of items from that market basket. The reason being that those have a bad uh, 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 habit of being highly volatile. So the core takes out food and energy from the equation, from the market basket. Because food, uh, I, I'm sorry, no, no. God, it's housing and energy, geez, really. Housing and energy. Because those, those two tend to whip up and down. And so they can kind of take away the underlying process that's going on with prices. So the core CPI tries to eliminate the things that could make it bounce the CPI measure, go up and down and up and down. Realistically, you want to look at both of them. Because, like, for example, when the... Uh, Consumer prices were going up. There was no question about that. But when gasoline was going up so darn much, it was having an abnormal impact on the CPI, on the broad CPI. Uh, I mean, yeah, gas is important, but when it goes up by 100%, that's really kind of skewing the, what was going on with other prices. So that's why this core CPI is out there, and it's something that we keep an eye on, too. Taking that all out, there are a couple, of, actually, there are a couple of other measures of inflation, too. They're more macro, 
there, there's one, there's a GDP deflator and some more like that. But I want to give you a caution about the CPI. This came back in the 19, early in the, I think it was in the 1990s, because I was a practicing economist at the time, and I remember when it happened, when they, the government started doing this dodgy thing in calculating inflation. They did two dodgy things. And uh, some of us at the time, and I forgive my French, but we were calling bullshit. And the government just ignored us. We said, no, you shouldn't be doing this. And they just ignored the... Uh, and of course, if you, do, if you call that kind of stuff, you're not going to be asked for your opinion by the political people if you call them a bunch of liars. So that a lot of economists just said, well, yeah, I guess I see the reason for it. Uh, let me explain. CPI. You know that market basket of goods? Okay. The, well, let's say that you, sir, buy a new computer. Now, computers have gone up $200 from when you bought one a month ago. Okay, so you buy one a month later. I mean, you got to have the cutting edge technology. Okay. Well, what the government does, and this is the Bureau of Labor Statistics of the Department of Commerce, they say, no, the computer didn't really go up $200 because some of that increase was because of improved technology. That is a better product, the one that is he's just bought than the one that came before. So they'll shave some of that price off there, saying some of that was not inflation, it was technological improvement. Okay? So that was the first one. We thought, yeah, that's a little dodgy there, because how do you measure technological improvement and all of that? What does that even mean? when we say, well, the technology is better now than it was. But there's something behind that. People don't think that way. What technology they have is what they consider to be the technology. And, okay, here's the other one that they pulled off. And this comes from economics. Do you remember in your microeconomics class when they talked about the substitution effect as the price of a product goes up, consumers will tend to substitute away from that product toward uh, close substitutes, right? Well, they say, okay, the price of eggs went up, no, the price of milk went up by a dollar. But really, consumers seeing a dollar price increase will shift away from milk so they won't feel the entire impact of a dollar increase. So they take some of that dollar increase off because consumers substituted away from it to another product, like that almond milk. For God, who drinks almonds? I mean, they give me the wind. Uh, anyway, okay, but you see what I mean, though, right? And anymore, no one even asks about this except us old-time economists who still say, you know, inflation is probably the way you cut out some of these price increases because of technological improvements, because of um, a substitution effect. 
Now, you're actually underestimating inflation when you do this trick, and they do it every month. So just keep that in mind that what you're seeing is what really is happening, but that's not what the government is reporting. They, so they want you to not believe your lying eyes. Is it a significant thing? In some eras, yes, it is. Uh, but that, anyway, one way or the other. So keep in mind that these are important for us to keep an eye on, but they do have their flaws because of the way they're calculated. But even more fundamentally, they are flawed because of what really matters is expectations of inflation, not actual inflation. It's expectations. Right now, I've, I'm starting to set up for my art shows for this coming summer. I am setting prices up based upon what I expect inflation to be, not on what they're saying it is. So in other words, if I've got an artwork at $400, it's going to be four, close to 500 now because I expect inflation to be that bad, uh, realistically. And also, I, and because replacement. Okay, I sell that. I'm going to have to replace it with another work, and I will expect to pay a higher price for the parts to put together that new artwork for the next show. Uh, difficult, but let me talk broadly here. I'll start with a story. And this would have been before you were probably teenagers. And actually, even your parents wouldn't have known what had happened uh, on a very scary day in September of 2008, it was. We have a way of seeing if there's a recession coming. And I'm going to show it to you. You will have a crystal ball. You, can, you sir, can change your name to Madame Zabida Psychic Economics. Yes, you can. Because this actually works. Uh, this thing that I can look at, it's called a yield curve. And I'll, I'll show you a yield curve right now. It's actually, you've seen them, but you haven't seen a visual of them. And so... What I'll do is I'll pull up a visual. You re remember I've shown you these rates, the yields on progressively longer maturities of T-bills, 4.63, 4.83, 4.86. If you graph that from three months to 30 years, you get what's called a yield curve. Now, typically, when we... When we graph these yield curves against maturity, the x-axis, the horizontal axis, we do what's called a log linear, so that longer periods of time are shorter on the axis than early. So in other words, three months, six months, one year, and then by the time you're out here to 20 and 30, they're not very far apart. You just take the logarithm and it keeps it from, uh, otherwise I'd be graphing across three wild whiteboards there. Now a yield curve should look 
something like this. It rises. And the reason it rises is the maturity premium. Remember that one from the risk premium? As the maturity of the uh, loan goes up, there's more and more of a pad because of volatility, potential volatility of interest rates. So this is a healthy-looking yield curve, a healthy-looking yield curve. Now, there are some yield curves that are downright unhealthy. One, and this one's kind of hard to say, healthy versus unhealthy. If I see a yield curve that's arching too much, that is more than just maturity premium. That would tell me that there's, the markets are progressively putting a larger and larger expected inflation premium. In other words, there's an expectation that inflation is going to accelerate. And that would be kind of, but, you know, who's to say, well, this is healthy, but this is unhealthy. How high does it have to arch before we worry about it? That's a little bit of a, uh, an art, not a science. But let me go on here. Here's one that we want to stay on the other side of the universe from this one. And we've seen these in other countries. As a matter of fact, uh, just this, it's kind of weird how this dovetails with uh, the international finance course. I've shown this yield curve happening in several countries over the past 30, 40 years when they were, their, uh, their economies were collapsing and their exchange rates were just going to hell. This is when a yield curve actually declines. I mean, that is deflation. That means that there's a deflation, not a disinflation. Disinflation is when the inflation rate slows down, which is what we hope is happening now. Uh, this is a freaking deflation. And I mean, this is something that you don't want to see ever. Uh, and we've seen it historically in countries that were right on the precipice of Basically, the economy was dying, revolution, and all kinds of things. So we, we want to stay away from a, one, of these one of these monstrosities. But there's one in the middle. This one, every recession ever in U.S. history has been preceded by what I'm about to show you by 6 to 12 months. If we see this one, we are almost positive that we will have a recession within 6 to 12 months. Uh, now, there have been a couple of these when this happened where it didn't go into a recession. It went into an economic pause. Zero growth of GDP for two consecutive quarters. But for the most part, we see a full-blown recession. So every recession we've ever had has been preceded by what I'm about to show you here. This is called an inverted yield curve. It starts out looking normal, but somewhere like a 10-year treasury has a lower yield than a 7-year, something like that. That's an inverted yield curve. So all you have to do is look at the numbers and you'll see the inverted yield curve. 
So let me take you on a journey here where back to normal times. It's pretty weird these days because I have to go back like four or five years to find a normal time in yield curves. Okay, see this one? Look, this was in 2018. See, this is a nice, healthy, rising yield curve. You see it? The maturities, as maturity goes, uh, increases, the yield goes up because of a healthy maturity premium. Nothing big. And that's what we love ourselves to see, is something like that. Let me take you back to 2008. At that time, I was publishing my own uh, website doing political and economic analysis. And in the spring of 2008, I started reporting that there were some not good numbers in that period. Uh, from 2000, 2001 on past that, I was saying there's something wrong with this economy. There's some something grim going on here. It's hard to quite know what it is. But I got more and more aggressive in saying we're coming to a problem. The yield curve in the spring of 2008 was trying to invert on the 710 year leg. It didn't though. The yield on the 10 year was still a couple of basis points above the yield on the 7 year. And I mean, that can happen, but it was just so darn close, I kept, I started reporting on it almost every day. And then I think it was in May of 2008, I published an article because for a few hours, one day, there was a technical inversion. The 10-year had dropped one or two basis points below the seven-year. That's an inversion. It, all it has to do is invert. It doesn't even have to stay inverted. It can re, uh, reset itself, which it did. But I said, we got a recession. It's going to come. It's going to be a bad one, too. Uh, and, you know, it was, that was in June. And there was uh, May or June. And, you know, the, the many other economists were saying, no, no, you're looking at the wrong yield curve or you're looking at it wrong and all that kind of stuff. Okay, reel it forward to September, the morning of September 15th, 2008. On the east coast of the United States, someone or something was draining huge amounts of money market funds. They were, they were being withdrawn on the east coast banks as the sun rose, as their banks opened. We couldn't tell who was doing it, though because uh, they were shadow accounts. And the best thing would be, OK, where is that money going? You look around for everything else, see where there's a price spike happening. OK, if the money's going out of this, it's going into something like gold or grain or something. And that should be causing prices to react within seconds on those markets. It was nowhere. There was no price that was showing that that money was going anywhere. It was just vanishing. 
the Federal Reserve's uh, technical uh, folks called, uh, they said something is really wrong here. By 10 o'clock, $550 million had been withdrawn at an accelerating rate it was from the banks on the East Coast and in the Midwest. It was to the point where within an hour or two, the banks would go illiquid. They wouldn't have enough money to satisfy demand, demand accounts. And that would, once they buckled, they would go fold insolvent. That would go across the country as the sun moved. And then once it got over to the Pacific, other side of the Pacific Rim, the banks in Hong Kong, Tokyo, in Singapore, and all those other countries, South Korea, they would start to buckle under this uh, cascade because they all are based on each other. So as these fall, the domino effect would keep going. If that had happened, well, simple, you would not have been able to get money out of an ATM. Nothing would have worked anymore. There, it would have been over. That would have been financial apocalypse. At 12 o'clock, the Federal Reserve uh, issued an order that there would be no more withdrawals allowed from money markets on money market accounts. No more, none, from anywhere for any purpose. And a joint session of Congress was called within. It was within a half an hour. They locked the doors and they brought in every expert and all the government officials and said, what the hell is happening here? And whatever it was, there are a lot of theories about what happened, but who did it and why and all that, but we don't know to this day. But what we do know is if the Fed had not stopped it, just essentially blocked all withdrawals from money markets, we would be in a very, very different world right now than we are. So that gives you an idea of why it's kind of important to keep an eye on things and listen to these back voices on these economic websites sometimes. But anyway, so inverted yield curve. Let's go here. Let's go. 2000, oh, let's go over here to 2020. 2020, apply. Well, spank me Jesus. Look at that. Do you see an inversion right off the top of the year? You see it? 1.55, and then that's the one year. And the two year, 1.53. That's an inversion. There's a recession right there. And sure enough, we had one later in the year. By the time you get down to here, let me get out here. The Fed had just poured money into the economy, just poured it in to stave off a recession. Remember I told you about the politics of it. They just dumped money in and the curve went right. It came back uh, again. Do you see how low the shortest term rates were? That was the Fed just running the printing presses day and night to pour money into the economy to keep the re a recession from happening. So let's go here to 2021. And I'll look here late in the year. Pretty 
pretty normal looking curve, right? See how it's still on track? Well, let's go here. Let's bring it back up to 2022. This is what is worrying us. Where are we? Bring it down here, 2022. Get down here to the end. Look at this. This isn't just a, an inversion of the yield curve. This is a bitch of an inversion. Look at it. Do you see how many legs are down, are dropped? Do you see it? That is, remember I was showing you one where this one is a little lower than this one. Look at that one right there. That is a long leg of inversions. From here all the way over to here, the yield curve is inverted right now. We're coming into this year. That's why you hear still... Even though the numbers look good right now, unemployment looks good, manufacturing looks good, you know, people are buying stuff, we still have a frickin' inverted yield curve, and we've never seen something like this that didn't lead to a recession within 6 to 12 months. That's what you're facing right now. So, that, not to concern you, I've got a couple of extra couches at my place you can crash on. Uh, if, as long as you bring snackies with you, you know, pizza, cat food, so the cats don't scratch you. But, uh, yeah, that's what's, that's what's going on right now. So, you know, what, there's a great thing about the, uh, seeing the future. You can see the future. The bad part is that you can see the future, and that's what's... It's scary about this one is because the yield curve has never been wrong. So let's just hope that this is the one where it finally is. But I'm not. That's why I am, you know, long term. I'm a I'm a bear right now because this can't get by. This can't. Uh, this can't not have consequences. So there you are. Yeah, that, that, that should brighten your darn day. So go ahead. You've got a quiz that's opening up. And once you're finished with that quiz, that's all I have for you today. I thank you. <laughs>